welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. This is science news writer Tim Beck, and I will be interviewing Ian Tucker, professor and director of impact and innovation in the School of Psychology at University of East London. He has expertise in digital media, emotion and mental health, and has published over 45 articles and book chapters, uh, and has a monograph book entitled The Social Psychology of Emotion. He is currently authoring an Emotion in the Digital Age monograph for Rutledge's Studies in Science, Technology, and Society series, while working on several projects uh, involving technology and mental health. So welcome, Ian. It's great to talk to you today. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Just to get started, like I noticed you have like a really broad range of transdisciplinary research interests. Um, and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit in, of information about your background. So do you have a PhD in psychology, philosophy, social theory, mental health? What, what, what's your background there? My background's in psychology. I did an undergraduate degree in, in psychology, and then I did a PhD in psychology as well. I think the kind of um, interdisciplinarity of it and the kind of transdisciplinarity of it comes from the probably mostly from my PhD work. Um, so I did I did my PhD in the early 2000s at Loughborough University. Now, it's a really interesting place at the time because there was a group, um, you may well have heard there's a group of people in the in the kind of social sciences there who had developed a kind of um, an approach to studying psychology as interaction, kind of known as okay. discourse analysis, you know, right, right, right. really kind of well known. Um, but in a slightly different department, where there was where there was also a psychology element there was a group of us working with um i was supervised by professor steve brown there was professor john Crombie okay. there we were kind of really interested in psychology as a kind of embodied material kind of experience so in a sense although i'd been trained in psychology and i had done all the kind of you know cognitive psychology and neuropsychology and all those things as an undergraduate it was very much the social elements of psychology that i was interested in right. and um and kind of studying psychology you know in the environments in which it's experienced yeah so it's, if you like it's almost kind of a slightly sort of expanded view of psychology you know f fully acknowledging there's stuff going on in the mind but also really interested in how people experience uh you know people's psychological experiences as kind of materially embodied grounded uh, um, kind right. of uh, um, experiences uh, yeah, there's such a rich history of that line of thinking in the UK, so it makes sense that you have those connections with uh, the discourse analytic tradition. Yeah, and I mean, they were really, really influential, and, you know, uh, um, I did a lot of that kind of discourse analytic work in, in my in my PhD, but, but then almost this kind of broadened it in, in terms of this kind of the materiality aspects, I think, as well, which maybe that right. wasn't. You know, there are debates at the time about how how that language can do a lot and it does a lot of work kind of psychologically, but but what about kind of the material environment and kind of right. the body and, and, and these more kind of, you know, sometimes sort of ineffable kind of elements and stuff, right. how do you potentially kind of incorporate them? And I think that's where some of the kind of philosophy potentially kind of comes in a bit. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, so a lot of your research interests focus on the relationship between emotions and technology and, and mental health and technology. The, this interest in mental health and technology, is this an interest that you, you've always had? Is this something that comes from any work that you've done in the mental health field? Or is this maybe just something that came about naturally during your PhD? Well, the technology thing's more recent. So I'll start with the mental health. The mental health sort of strand, I think, has been the main kind of empirical strand in my in my work since my PhD. 
I mean, and I think that's possibly comes from kind of two two places. One of which is my late father was a psychiatric nurse, and I don't know if you you know in the UK. Well, it would have been the same in the states as well. But you know, we used to have these grand kind of Victorian mental health asylums out in the countryside. My father worked in one of them, and he used to take me up there. You could just freely access those at that time. And it was a really kind of evocative experience as a young child walking around this huge building. And I can still, you know, remember the the sights and the smells of the environment there. So I think I sort of had interest in mental health from an, from an early age. And then as an undergraduate, I did a, a final year module that was run by Professor Paul Arrivia. She's done a lot of work in kind of mental health and, and the environment as well. And it was, a, it was a really good kind of critical take on sort of mental health that raised quite a few issues around debates around how we conceptualise you know mental distress and, and the issues around kind of diagnosis and medicalization and things so so that's been there kind of throughout my kind of phd and that's been an empirical strand for for quite some time as i say you know for me experiences of mental distress are, are ongoing then they're not they don't just happen in the clinic or in the mental health services they're also there with people as they just go through everyday life so it's also interested in that kind of everyday life kind of aspect of it you know where were people experiencing distress and how were their experiences of distress shaped by the kind of places they inhabit and the and the environments in which they inhabit. so i've done empirical work the impact of kind of community centers on kind of notions of recovery i've done work on you know people's experience of, of their kind of home environments and kind of organizing and managing their home kind of spaces in relation to distress i've done work in kind of forensic secure settings as well i think what the technology is probably emerged more in the last four five six years where my interest in kind of the environments and the locations of experience of distress became quite apparent that they're becoming increasingly kind of digitized <laughs> so, yeah. so, so so almost to focus on environments without focusing on how they're mediated by increasingly mediated by digital technology seems um, something uh, you know it's, it seems an interesting area and an important area to start to look at yeah that that makes so much sense to me because i think about my own work you know i think back to where, where this started and this was like reading the anti-psychiatrists like foucault and Bisaglia, yeah. and like they've always had this interest on how you know, institutions can regulate the emotions of of the patients who are there right yeah. and it's not just um the thoughts that become institutionalized, but people's emotions become institutionalized and their bodies become disciplined in the way that Foucault talk about them. But yeah. with deinstitutionalization, then things open up, right? And things yeah. go out into the community. And um, it would make sense that we, we would see uses of digital technology in those areas to sort of expand uh, the reach of that a little bit. So is that where you came from it as well? Yeah, no, definitely. I remember, you know, reading the Basaglia stuff, Foucault's Madness of Civilization, and, ju- and just mental health, you know, is, is such a, you know, unfortunately, it's been such a kind of rich, rich kind of resource for studies of cultural theory and 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 because it's been subject to so many kind of different kind of conceptualizations throughout the years you know and like you say the kind of the deinstitutionalization the moving to community care um which was deemed to be a way of integrating people more into kind of communities because keeping them institutionalized sort of out in the, these kind of out of town places it was like they were kind of removed and that was anothering process and it's felt well we just bring them back to the community then you know that that that, that, that will be okay and of course it wasn't so it became a you know a, a real interest to sort of see what does community care mean for people where where what where where is it located you know the right. notion the location of mental health care 
was so prominent when it was in the institutions because it, it you know it was so kind of spatialized in these big huge kind of victorian institutions right. whereas you know wh- where were the locations uh, um in kind of community care and you know that's what i was interested in doing and, and like what what does it mean then for digital technologies to be increasingly used in mental health services and stuff and how, how does that change the operation and kind of way that community care kind of works basically right yeah and so yeah, i've noticed that um in your work you focus a lot on a few uh particular french philosophers the guideliers mm-hmm. and uh, gilbert simon den Henri bergson uh, I'm just curious, is there anything about their thought in particular that you found useful for thinking about these issues or have you just yeah. sort of stumbled across them, no, their connections with each other? A bit of both, probably. This always stuck with me when I was sort of halfway through my PhD. I was, I'd interviewed many um, people using mental health services in, in, in the Midlands and the UK because that's where I, was, where I was doing the PhD. I was interviewing them in community centres, but also talking to them about the other spaces in which they sit in their time. So talking about their kind of homes and stuff. And, and they were talking to me about their homes and how they organised it and what they did there. We were talking through this, I remember one day with my supervisor at the time, he, he basically introduced this notion of territorialization. Deleuze and Guattari goes, oh, territorialization about kind of the organisation of space. Now, of course, Deleuze and Guattari were doing a bigger thing with it, but it still felt useful as a kind of concept to think about this notion of, you know, space isn't fixed. It's something that requires an ongoing kind of process of, of kind of ordering, you know, between people and objects and the material kind of environment. That was my way into kind of Deleuze and and then obviously I read around that and it, the overarching ideas around kind of process, I think, spoke quite a lot to me, as they still do, actually, in the kind of process philosophical ideas and, and, and kind of the way that that frames experience as this kind of, you know, as, as an ongoing thing, something that needs to can be continually enacted and, and achieved rather than trying to reduce particular behaviours or experiences to a computational model of the mind or something. I think that the the kind of process was really interesting in terms of Deleuze and Bergson. Uh, you know, I like I like the stuff that Bergson writes around the body as this kind of image and 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 how we can know our bodies in relation to kind of other bodies and our bodies is the only one we, we we kind of know as a kind of subject rather than just as an object. You know, it's a particular kind of image for us, and and that was of interest in relation to how people talk about their bodies in relation to medication, how they try to make sense of the material impacts of medication. I've written some stuff around kind of medication and experience of medication. So I was really interested in that. And then the Simondon thing is, I think, a continuation of that. But Simondon had a particular idea, had a particular focus on technology, which I found kind of really interesting. Uh, and and also this idea of the cycle of experience depending on this relationship to ourselves and our relationship to others, but that this is happening kind of simultaneously. So there's this notion of kind of psychic and collective individuation, that we are simultaneously individual and collective. We're kind of carrying a part of the collective with us. And I think what that resonated with me in terms of data, basically, and and, and data practices, this idea that we are, you know, as we interact with digital technologies, we are constantly kind of adding to the collective as as we generate data or the technologies we engage with generate data about our activities that this is feeding into the algorithms of big tech etc broadly speaking i found process philosophies a rich resource 
for for understanding the kind of sort of experience of mental health and emotion and then there have been particular kind of concepts used by the likes of Deleuze and Montenbergson that I've found useful in relation to specific kind of research questions in particular projects. I've had the same thought with Simon did because you know you have a biopsychosocial model in psychology which is quickly becoming one of the most popular and it, yeah. the way that it, I feel like it tends to be talked about is that these are sort of se- separate realms that somehow yeah. interact in this way that we don't really understand but um, Simondon does this great job like you said is talking about how these processes of individuation they can happen simultaneously yeah. and by focusing on one we kind of ignore the implications yeah. of the other. Um, and I think his thought for me was always such an interesting way of, of combining these different areas without yeah. reducing anyone to any of any of the other areas. Yeah, and, and the idea that we're so conditioned to think of the individual and start our analysis in terms of the individual and how does, you know, certainly in psychology, I mean, you know, how does the individual work? But someone wants to take us back from that because you don't start with the individual. You start with the kind of process that collective kind of you know trans individuation the kind of process before an individual has kind of emerged and then you, and then you try to understand that 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 kind of process of emergence so it's that kind of stepping back i think is really really useful which isn't something we always do in psychology i think because often we are very focused on on the individual and that's our starting point how does this particular psychological kind of phenomenon operate there's been a lot of discussion on Mad in America lately about all these new applications of digital technology to issues related to mental health and distress and so uh, there's been a lot of talk about the FDA, for instance, uh, recently approving like this version of digital pill, which contains sensors that detect, you know, when they've been ingested, and you know, courts and various authorities can track this. You know, there, there are new apps being released all the time that track the mental health of their users, uh, collecting data on their on their activity and sometimes even their physiology and, and biology. Uh, then there's uh, the you know the exceedingly popular virtual therapy apps like Talkspace that are being used. Uh, with great popularity now with social distancing uh, guidelines. Um, and then, of course, with all of this, there, there are applications of artificial intelligence to making diagnoses mm-hmm. and suggesting treatments. So uh, the question that I wanted to ask you from your perspective, like, what do you see as some of the most concerning ways that the digital technologies are being used in these ways in, in professional mental health relationships in particular? Wow. As you articulated really well, there it's a, it's a really it's a really kind of huge area, and I think there's many many things that need to be considered in relation to this. And I don't know, you know, I know the UK context obviously better than I know the US context. Firstly, I think it often these things are being driven by commercial organisations. And you've only got to go on the App Store, and you can find you know ten thousand mental health related apps or whatever. But very few, certainly in the UK, very few are authorized and kind of regulated by our national health service because to get something regulated by the national health service there's a whole kind of process that needs to go through and it needs to kind of randomize control trials or or you know that's seen as the gold standard of kind of testing so there's not much kind of official but there's so much kind of unofficial kind of out there but it's almost as if the regulators can't keep up because things are coming out so 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 quickly one of my concerns is actually how these technologies are used by kind of professional health services and in relation to professional mental health services. So, for example, are they used as a supplement or are they increasingly used in place of in-person kind of care and support? So I think they can be really helpful if it's a, if it's as a supplement, but obviously have concerns if it then becomes, you know, something that's actually thought, well, actually, we don't, we no longer need the in-person services. I mean, all this, this is a really dynamic situation. None of these, we don't have answers to any of these things yet, but this is the sort of stuff that's being played out. Obviously, as you alluded to at the start, Digital technology, that's a really broad range of think- ways they're being used. I don't know too much about the kind of digital pill thing. That, you know, my immediate reaction to that is obviously who's in charge of the data? How is the data being used? 
Is it safe physiologically? Also, you know, what kind of model of mental health and distress is underpinning that? So it's the idea that the, the body, the, what we need to know is the physiology of the body to understand, you know, how people are kind of feeling. Of course, body plays a major role and so does physiology, but there's also a whole realm of social and kind of cultural inferences uh, around people's fe- feelings of, express, uh, of distress. I mean, there's a whole literature on, you know, the impact of trauma and negative life experiences and the correlations with that and developing mental problems. So we have to think about what, which kind of model of kind of mental health and it's very much a kind of medical model an individualistic model or not that's being used there are other areas in which they're being used and thing in, in particularly in relation to kind of peer support and um, i think you know that's often happening in kind of non-clinical settings and non-kind of formal mental health settings maybe in the sort of charity sector that can be particularly useful because you know we know that developing feelings of belonging and connecting with people that have got similar experiences can be really beneficial. There, there can be challenges with it as well, but they can be really beneficial. And obviously, you know, one of technology's greatest things is its power to connect. So, you know, it can be it can be beneficial there. But it's a really such a kind of huge area. I think it's almost needs to be categorized and into different areas, and each one kind of judged on its own merits, really, in terms of what what's the underlying model of mental health that it's, that it's drawn on, who's who's in charge of it, you know, how is the data being used? Will it change? individuals relationship with in-person services crucially amongst all of this how do individuals feel and experience these new developments i mean I've, you know from i've always wanted to talk to people that experience mental problems and see the, from their perspective their you know their experiences and, and see great value in in the in people's own experiences and, and focusing research on their own experiences seems like you're saying that maybe on the one hand, the, one of the issues is just the collection of the data. Like, how's the data being collected and stored? Who has access to that data? Yeah. And that's an important issue because you know, as more and more data gets collected, it's going to be harder to just probably keep track of where this data is going and, and where it's yeah. being managed. Right? But then on the other hand, and maybe this speaks to, to some of your theoretical interests and research interests a little bit more, it's like, well, how do we interpret that data? Like, what model are you applying to that data because you can collect all the data in the world but if you don't have a way of making sense of all of that data um, then it's hard to know where to start or even if it's useful and it's probably going to be the people who have uh, the means of, of making sense of, of the most of that data that can benefit from it the most yeah right? like which yeah. which requires probably pretty complex algorithms that yeah. not a lot of people have access to yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the model of underpinning the data collection uh, or the data generation, actually, I prefer to talk about kind of data being generated rather right. than kind of collect. It's a different kind of theoretical kind of premise on, on there. And then what it's used for, just to pick up on the point about AI, I mean, there's a real push towards that. You know, you've got virtual chatbots that almost try to emulate the individual kind of ther- therapist kind of relationship. And, you know, there's huge potential there. I think people see huge potential in that because obviously it'd be much more cost-effective and much cheaper to deliver services in, in relation to that. Um, but huge questions regarding whether people feel that can develop a kind of empathetic kind of relationship with a, with a kind of virtual agent. I mean, I did do a, do a project on empathy and artificial intelligence in relation to mental health. It did not involve developing any particular technology, so it was more about exploring the potential to develop a chatbot that would utilize peer support that would try to that would be premised on the on the principles of peer support but, in, but instead of interacting with it with a peer you would be interacting with a 
AI agent that's been trained in the principles of peer support. So a complex project, interesting project. It was very much about working. We ran some workshops and we worked with um, people who had experienced mental distress uh, to, to, to try to understand what they felt about this. And, and and some people were really kind of keen on it and felt that you could, you know, develop a empathetic kind of relationship with an agent, a virtual agent. But there are certain things that they felt would be important to do that, like, you know, that you could personalize it so it felt more kind of individual to you, that you could engage in a kind of conversation with it. So it would need to be kind of trained as a kind of conversation. It would be beneficial. The immediacy of it would be really beneficial. So if you need support, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you can just clock on there. That maybe it would learn, you know, a key finding that came through was that what would be beneficial if it, if it learned what worked for you, you know, so it's almost like have a sort of diary element. But then people also had concerns about it. They, did, you know, they, they felt it, maybe it would work as a kind of supplemental thing and also that it would be limited, you know, the idea that it could respond to everything and all the kind of complexity and nuance of experience and emotion, that it would be able to be trained to respond to all of that in to a similar way that a trained therapist would be was, right. was questioned. But it's, that's definitely, you know, a, a significant area of research developing the use of artificial intelligence sort of, and machine yeah. learning. Yeah, and I'm thinking like now with the social distancing guidelines that have been imposed, you know, in all areas of the world, recently, you know, there are already reports coming out that more and more people are downloading mental health apps and turning to apps, even even ones that don't have another person on the other side, in order to get some, like you said, this immediacy of connection, and even if it's not connection with the person, it creates the feeling of connection. I wonder, like, sort of moving forward, um, even maybe after these social distancing guidelines ease a little bit. Where do you see this going? Do you think like the the use of mental health apps is going to continue to increase? Do you see like this idea of of interacting with an interface that might not necessarily be be a human on the other side is is coming to kind of replace other forms of therapy? Because because that seemed to be one of the concerns you mentioned before, right? That these these are coming out so quickly that no one can really track what they're doing and and get any sense for on the one hand are they useful okay, can they actually help people on the other hand you know who's behind these who's benefiting from um, the data that's being generated uh, via these interactions right so you know, what are your senses about like where this could go in the future it's definitely only going to increase as far as I as far as I can tell yeah I mean obviously you know the technology always develops in all areas so I, I can only see this increasing I think the development in terms of the quantity of, of kind of mental health related apps won't diminish so long as people are using them. I think people do use them a lot. I think an important distinction here though is, is that's not always clear is there's a lots of mental health related apps. A lot of them are kind of more focused on kind of well-being. Yeah. I know these are slightly problematic concepts, but on kind of well-being as opposed to helping people with existing mental distress and who are experiencing mental ill health so there is a distinction there so i mean in the in the u.s obviously it'd be the fda but in in the uk it'd be the nhs the national health service mm-hmm. will you know are doing more research about these um apps i think certain ones will be kind of regulated there are a few already there's there's a, there's a kind of website app in the uk called big white wall i think it may well be international so you might have it in the states you know that that, that you can have kind of online therapy with that, that has a kind of chat room in it and stuff and the, and the nhs are, are supportive and kind of regulate that and they will start doing research on it they'll start doing kind of gold standard randomized control trials that aspect of it that just takes time because doing those kind of trials takes does take a long time you know so, so i think 
we may well still this sort of proliferation of mental health related apps that you can have access to that anyone with a smartphone can have access to will continue i don't think they will all become part of formal mental health services because that's going there's always going to be a lag there and, and, until a mental health service will kind of authorize them the ones that are deemed to be effective you know over time if therapy or, or whatever aspect of kind of care and support it, it, uh, an app focuses on if it's deemed to be effective then it may it, it could well there's a real possibility that it'll end up in a in, in kind of reducing the provision of that aspect if it was previously supplied through in-person services right. you know i just think that that's that's just a logical way forward and in, in the same way that many industries are using automation you know mm-hmm. uh, automation has happened in many kind of industries not that mental health is an industry but you know if automation is deemed to be effective, then it will be used. And I think there are real kind of concerns about that. But it's something that just needs ongoing research and kind of, you know, ethical kind of oversight. But as I said before, I can see a lot more use of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence to provide mental health support. Yeah, it seems like one of the big concerns is, and it seems like you have a strong a publicly funded health system in the UK. We yeah. Not so much in the US, unfortunately. Yeah, they're very so different we, models, aren't they? Yeah. Very different, yeah. And we've had to deal, you know, with corporate influence in the mental health field since mm. the beginning. It seems like you haven't had those same issues with, with the pharmaceutical industry and um, other companies intervening, but it seems like maybe this could open the door for some private interests to make a stake in the mental health market in yeah, the UK, I mean, or is, is that a mischaracterization? And no, not necessarily. It's not my area of research, but you know okay. the, the the link between industry and kind of mental health care in, in publicly funded NHS goes back quite some time. I mean, you know, people have you know the antipsychiatrists written a lot about you know the medicalization of distress, you know, and and you know there's lots of work in kind of critical psychiatry and antipsychiatry about the influence of big pharma. So yeah, there are people that would say there has been a link and influence. Yeah, but I could see that. Yeah, that I think that will continue because. In the main, the technology companies aren't, you know, the NHS, for example, doesn't have its own technology development company. You know, it's, it's going to recruit and work in partnership with technology companies who are seeking yeah. to develop these things. And these technology companies are largely commercial enterprises. But then, in a way, that's no different to the pharmaceutical companies who have been, you know, for the last 80, 70, 80 years have been, you know, talking to the health services and saying, look, we've developed this medication. This can help you in X, Y and Z. I don't see that much of a difference there. I don't think it's a, it's a new thing, although working, you know, now we're maybe not talking about, you know, a, a medication. We'll be talking about a, an app or something. But there's, right. there, there are key similarities there, I think. And that leads me to something else I wanted to ask you about. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about these ideas like surveillance capitalism and, and um, mm. digital capitalism and attention economy, right? All these terms yeah, yeah, yeah. get thrown out to try to make sense of really what what a lot of other authors have been talking about is, is the neoliberalization of, of the market and neoliberalization of the world and of digital technology. So I'm just curious, like, with all these ways of talking about it, do you have a particular frame that you use to make sense of it? I saw one of your, your studies does talk about surveillance society. Is that something that draws on um, Zuboff's concept of surveillance capitalism, or are you taking it in a different direction? Not so much Zuboff's concept, although... I have done some work on kind of surveillance, not specifically in relation to mental health. And we, you know, and actually at that point, we were interested in, you know, how people were experiencing kind of surveillance. Uh, At that time, it was very much around kind of visual surveillance, actually, more more than the kind of what's known as kind of data surveillance or digital surveillance or 
there's a concept of kind of effective atmospheres in sort of social geography and cultural theory and the social science and stuff that we that we used in terms of trying to kind of understand the fluidity and and, and the kind of complexity of how surveillance can kind of be experienced by people in their kind of as they go through their everyday lives we so we've just finished i mean you mentioned it right at the, at the start we've just finished a book on emotion in a digital age um that's due out later this year in in that we, we did write about the challenges around this kind of mass datification of emotion you know we were talking particularly kind of about emotion um, not not only mental health we do we do touch on kind of emotional distress and mental health in the book and actually what that kind of means and and i think i mean it's it's such a issue in contemporary society and the kind of you know on a kind of globe, global scale at the moment and and but there's still so much we don't know i think about how people experience it you know what what people know about the, the use of face recognition has been in the press recently you know quite a lot and then that's not i mean we were writing about it in terms of emotion and and it's been impressed not just in relation to emotion it's often it's often in terms of kind of how it's used by law enforcement but you know there's lots of the use of kind of face recognition and AI to try to identify and interpret emotion by commercial enterprises, you know, but a lot of it's quite problematic. You know, it goes back to this idea of, you know, being able to read emotion on, on the face, you know, and we know that there's a lot of debate about the kind of validity of the studies upon which some of those are are developed and, um, and, and the universality of emotion, you know, whether that whether that's actually a, a valid kind of idea that emotion, you know, emotion is universally expressed. And actually, even if, you know, emotions, obviously we do express emotions, you know, through our bodies, but that's only one layer of an emotional experience. But it, it's happening a lot, you know, you know, Piccadilly Circus in London, in the UK, they have face recognition technologies that try to pick up you know what they sense people are feeling and you know try to use them it's very much this is always the trope that's used but it's very much that kind of minority report kind of idea i just don't know how much people realize it's going it's happening got a phd student that's kind of trying to work on a project in relation to that to try to you know see how people feel about it but it's it's a huge thing but i think there's quite a lag in terms of people's awareness and understanding of it yeah, and I think you bring up such a great point about the concept of emotion and how that's traditionally been such an X factor in the history of psychology and psychiatry. There's been so many attempts to try to understand it and um, drawing on psychoanalysis, you know, this has been the basis for thinking about the unconscious and that, you know, that which we can't really understand. Um, and so yeah, yeah. I think with, like you, you mentioned, you know, all of the global unrest, the, the, um, you know, the collective activism that's happening against racial injustice. And, and one of the main issues there seems to be this breakdown in one person's ability to read the other person's emotion and, and this mm-hmm. reacting on the basis of, of fear and an and assumed, assumed threat without mm-hmm. knowing if, you know, and without looking into whether or not there's an actual threat, right? So I think you, you started speaking to this idea that, well, it's not just going to be police officers that make these inferences, but that there could be technology you know, throughout our our public spaces that that there could be either someone on the other end making these interpretations who's a threat and who's not or algorithms it's algorithms i mean they're they're they're, they're a very prominent commercial organizations that have been spun out of uh, of academic institutions and research institutions very much looking at looking at this building huge databases of images um that they then sell to you know commercial organizations it's the gold isn't it for commercial organizations that they know how you feel Right. If they know how you feel about a product, 
that's what they need, isn't it? That you know, and that's what they want, and they'll pay a lot of money for it. So the interaction between technology and emotion, I think, is only only going to increase. And it's just such a long attempt in psychology to avoid talking about yeah. emotion or theorizing it seriously because it's yeah. so difficult to understand. It's such yeah. such an uncertain element. So I think yeah, that's one of the reasons I think your work is so interesting. And I think it speaks to something that you have to go to philosophy in order to find frameworks that are helpful to to make sense of, of these issues. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. And maybe that's one of the reasons why there's been a real move in kind of affect studies sort of since the late nineties across the kind of social sciences and kind of cultural theory and a real kind of focus on kind of emotion and and effect. Obviously you can debate a lot about the specific definitions of those terms. One of the things we wrote about in the book and that comes through really strongly, I think, is also this idea that technologies can know emotions better than the human, that the human just gets in the way of it. So actually so that you need technology, not not just that technologies can do what a human can do, but actually that technologies can do what a human can't do. And you need to remove the kind of consciousness out of it. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, that you could develop an algorithm that that can identify emotion through the mi- a, a, a level of micro expression and patterns of micro expressions far better than the human eye and that's often what these new technologies are saying they can do you know and it, this goes back to the problem in early psychology where uh, the kind of some of the kind of in, people doing the introspection as a kind of method it was like well no we don't you know you've got to take out the self-report because the self-report isn't valid because it's self-report you know we, the technology the physiology you know uh, uh, you know the technology can identify the physiological aspects more and and that's where the true phenomena is and that's happening now you know that's happening now with these technologies that are deemed to be better you know so you don't you don't ask people how they feel you right you use this technology to analyze their micro expressions and that and that technology will tell you we talked a little bit about all the, you know the dangers with mental health, but it seems like a lot of your or the dangers uh, using technology for mental health issues. But it seems like a lot of your work also focuses on creating community and mm-hmm. the collective dimension that's offered by technology. And that's another thing that drew me to your work. Um, so I'm curious, maybe just to continue this thread a little bit, like, do you have much thoughts on um, you know how digital technology has been used within some of these social movements to create this sense of solidarity and to provide a sense of belonging for groups that have traditionally been marginalized? Okay, yeah. So that, yeah, that's a really good question, and and kind of thanks for opportunity to speak to that because um, I think you know as with any phenomenon like we talk technology we you know we have, we have to obviously make sure we don't homogenize it and suggest it's only one thing because there are a lot of positives to technology although i have i did have some of the problems in terms of mental health i've done a project with a it wasn't an app at the time actually it was just a online community called ellie friends that was run by one of the major uk mental health charities which is called mind this is a few years ago now and and they had already identified the importance of peer support people who are effectively doing peer support on their facebook page at the time and then so they developed this this specialist kind of peer support site and we 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 looked at how peer support worked and we interviewed people that used it as ever there were kind of pros and cons but people found the immediacy of it immediacy of it really helpful they found the anonymity of it quite helpful as well yeah so um so being able to just talk anonymously about their experiences being able to you know Peer support often works because it's that idea that you that the person you're talking to is, ha, has had similar experiences, which isn't always a, a, a feeling that you'd get when you're dealing with a mental health professional. Yeah, so so the value of that sharing your experience, and of course, the advantage of something like an on, online community is that it gives you access to a far greater number of people that 
might have had a similar experience and it would have within a, a, a small kind of community center that might have 20 people accessing it when early friends are maybe 200,000. There's several kind of moves towards using kind of technologies to bring people together. Yeah. For people to connect and, and, and where notions of proximity and distance aren't then an obstacle to, yeah. to support. So there are benefits to that. There are also kind of challenges to that. I was going to just talk a little bit as well about some a project I'm hoping to that that will be starting soon, hopefully, which is also around kind of community and actually has a particular kind of COVID nineteen related element now, although it didn't when we designed it. We have a series of kind of government publicly funded research councils, and one of these research councils is focused on social science research, and um, it funded a number of networks to look at mental health and one of these networks looks at the impact of community and cultural assets on mental health many different things can be a community and cultural asset it might be a a local choir it could be a walking group it could be a painting group any any community kind of activity and they were really interested in understanding the impact of this kind of these community assets as they call them but there was no element of digital in any of this, you know. So, you know, we're proposing a project to look at the impact of the digital in relation to kind of community assets and whether it enhances the benefits of these, commu- these community practices, you know, what the challenges are, whether using digital technology in, in relation to a community asset, you know, enhances those positive feelings of connection and belonging, whether it acts as an obstacle to them. And we're looking at a couple of, we hope to look at a couple of kind of groups in relation to that. And then actually, as we were putting the bid together, obviously COVID-19 happened. And now, you know, two of the groups we're going to look at who didn't really use digital technology before have had to go completely online. You know, So, you know, what does that mean? Can you deliver these community assets purely online? So, yeah, there, there's, there's a number of different ways, I think, that digital technology has been used in relation to kind of communities. And, and that's formal and informal. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that can be a local creative painting group or singing group or something that has its own website that's quite formal. But it can also be, and I think this is really important and doesn't always get included, it could also be maybe a few users of that group who then set up a WhatsApp chat and, and what happens in that kind of WhatsApp chat. So it's, so I think there are formal and informal uses of digital technology, and I'm, I'm interested in kind of both of those, both of those aspects. And the more kind of informal ones, I think, don't always don't always get included because maybe they're not so visible, you know. But then that's why I think it's important to talk to the users of these kind of community groups and things and see how they're using kind of digital technologies. I know in the history of um, like digital technology studies and, and the history of the internet, you know, there's a strong undercurrent of, of, of peer-to-peer movement where you know, you're yeah. using technology not in a centralized way to collect as much data as possible like we see with yeah. Google and Facebook, but you try to develop these distributed systems or decentralized systems that can you know, network people in ways that allow resources to be shared more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And this seemed to be like the, the, the grand vision that the internet was built on. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but now with you know blockchain and, and other cryptos, these are like the, the distributed systems to get all the attention. But there are a lot of people doing interesting projects under the radar to create you know, ways of sharing information and sharing resources more effectively than a centralized system can. Right. So I like yeah. this way of modeling that yeah. mental mental health on something like that. Yeah, and I think I think you touched a really good point there, actually. And you know, obviously, technology is used in, in many different ways, but often the focus is on the delivery of kind of psychological therapies 
in a digital form. So getting an app that that you can have cognitive behavioral therapy through or something. Yeah. So a very kind of clinical focus, and that and that's obviously often what the mental health services and the professional services are focused on. But then you also get the use of digital technologies by non-mental health services, non-professional kind of services, you know, that might just use websites, but, you know, charities might have websites or even have their own Facebook groups. So that's outside of clinical services and might not be focused on the delivery of therapies that could still be supportive. And then you also have, you can also have just much more informal, you know, networks of, individuals using community services you know that are just talking through whatsapp or even just texting or something yeah and for me this is all the use of digital technologies to connect in relation to mental health but in very different kind of ways so i think that that, that's important distinction to make there actually that you know that doesn't always get picked up on because because off very often it's the it's the formal clinical use of digital technologies you know uh, um, that's focused on rather than all this other stuff that happens as well yeah, and it seems like in that context, then maybe you can think of affect as sort of like the glue that holds that group together, that community together. Yeah, yeah. And maybe this kind of reminds me of maybe your interest in Simon Dinn and Deleuze and affect theory, yeah. right? This idea yeah, that, yeah. that affect isn't just this individual thing, but it's it's a public thing that, that links yeah. us together. And yeah. in that sense, it's a sort of resource, right? It's a resource yeah. that you, you sometimes have to pay a therapist in order to regulate your emotions for you, right? But yeah, yeah. This, this idea is that yeah, you're looking at it from the way that it's generated within the community rather than yeah. um, provided yeah, as a service. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, and it's much more that kind of the way that affect gets kind of used and, and kind of, yeah, act as a, as a kind of, so, sort of social adhesive and bring people together. As you're talking there, it, it reminds me of something we wrote around how people talk about how people try to seek support through technology. So this was in relation to Ellie Friends, the online community, right. about their problems they're having with medication. Uh-huh. You know, when they they have a new medication or their dosage is increased or something, you know, and, and, and they are having these different kinds of feelings, you know, and there's a set of challenges to try to seek support for that. One of which is you might be having these feelings at three o'clock in the morning when you can't access your mental health services. Two of which is the mental health services, even if you could access them, wouldn't wouldn't have had this medication themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you want to speak to other people that have had it. And then three is how do you describe these feelings these embodied kind of feelings and you know and that was what i found bergson quite useful for you know this idea of that that how how do you try to communicate this embodied kind of feelings of different things you know but that actually that you kind of could and or or you could do it in such a way that would facilitate some kind of support you know Mm -hmm. because you because the digital technology gave you access to a large number of people that may well have had that particular medication oh yeah i've had that i actually found it expected me in this in that way and just actually hearing those stories from other people could be really supportive it struck me the way that i was reading that paper when i was reviewing it for mad in america is that it, it seems like you're talking about it as creating this sense of a collective knowledge on the site mm. and so like mm. as yeah. more more users log on and share what's going on for mm. them it, it continues to grow and it continues to provide different perspectives on use of medication, which isn't something you usually get when you just go to a doctor and get a prescription. You get you get the doctor's perspective, but you don't get to hear from other people who've taken that medication to know how how they've responded to it. Yeah, and, and then and then it almost becomes like a an archive, almost like an archive of right. effect, if you like, which is something that the digital provides that, that you wouldn't get necessarily through face-to-face peer support, you know, because that wouldn't necessarily create a record. Whereas, because it's online, it gets sort of stored. Other people can go on there and see it, you know, so people, and that's what people would say, you know, they would sometimes go on there 
there's an interesting kind of temporality, of course, about the, about this, isn't it? Where you go on there, look for support about something, and maybe find a post from five years ago, but that speaks directly to your experience. So, so the support doesn't even have to always be synchronous. It can be asynchronous, and actually, that can be a key advantage of the digital technology because it can create this basic this archive. I know you, you talked before about how you're working currently on a book about emotion in the digital age. Yeah, so we wrote a book with, with Darren Ellis, a colleague of mine at University of East London. We wrote a book on the social psychology of emotion in 2015. And that first book ended with a kind of chapter on kind of digital emotions sort or of digital related kind of aspects of emotion. So then we developed from that, we've, we've, we've written a book on emotion and digital age. Um, obviously, it's highly selective because it's such a, a big kind of area. But we, we were keen to look at uses of kind of artificial intelligence in relation to emotion, which has been termed by some people emotional AI. We did a chapter on kind of social media and emotion, a, a chapter on kind of mental health and emotion, and a chapter on surveillance. Yeah, that was the kind of final chapter, I think, because the slight danger i think with surveillance is if you start talking about it too early it can become an all-encompassing kind of concept yeah and it sort of tells you everything and yet nothing there's a slight simplification but you know i think it was useful to kind of build up build up to that rather than kind of just go in with with surveillance as a kind of concept so yeah we sort of drawing through different kind of aspects of of emotion in relation to kind of technologies so yeah that's that's an area that um yeah, definitely an area kind of ongo- an ongoing kind of area of interest. Okay, great. It's about all the time we have, but it was really great talking to you, Ian. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to answer some of these questions. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. No problem, Tim. I really, really enjoyed it. And thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.